So today I've decided to give an overview of some of the key texts in Gaelic literature in the 20th century. I'm not going to assume any previous knowledge of the texts. A lot of what I'm going to speak about today is archival material that hasn't been uh, published. Indeed, I feel myself I've turned into a, a literary archaeologist over the last year and a bit, really just trying to track down sources, um, never mind analysing and, and looking at textual analysis. But today, and given that many of these texts, in fact nearly all apart from the poems, haven't been translated, I, I, as I say, I will assume no previous knowledge. Um, I look at key texts and motifs and trends rather than in-depth um, textual literary analysis. Um, and I'm going to focus on three genres, uh, folklore sources, prose sources, and then poetry. So those are the three areas I look at today briefly. So we might start off then with the folklore sources. And just um, as maybe background uh, to those of you who mightn't be familiar with that collection, um, we have one of the, the, the biggest collection of folklore oral material in the world housed in UCD. The main manuscript collection has 2,400 bound volumes. There are 500,000 index cards, and most of that collection hasn't been digitized. So um, you can imagine the work involved in thralling through to find um, specific references. Now, some of that work has um, initially um, been done in the sense that there are 23 index cards under the, title, uh, under the title Jews. And I've looked at those. Of those 23 cards, nine of them are um, in the Irish language or relate to Irish language sources. And that's a little bit uh, unusual in the sense that most of the material, so two-thirds of the material of the, the collection of those 2,400 bound scripts are in the Irish language. So you see there um, that... Uh, the Jewish content um, isn't proportionate to the, the full content of the, of the collection. We should also remind ourselves that we're talking about an oral tradition, uh, and while stories formed part of the storytellers' repertoire when they were interviewed and collected in the 1930s and the 1940s, um, Nearly all respondents uh, indicated that they heard the story at least 20 years previously from older storytellers. Um, so what I'm saying is we can't assume that these stories were actually in circulation in the 1930s. Um, they really date back to at least the middle of the 19th century, if not um, older and, and further back. But just to give you an idea of the titles of the stories um, and their oral stories that I've come across, you see there, I've given them in English um, on the left-hand side and in Irish, and you'll see why in a minute, um, on the right. So Daniel O'Connell and the Jew, the Munificent Jew, the Story of the Jew, the Jew who converted to Christianity, Sean O'Sullivan from Coolnagopog, and that's a story about a poor man that marries a rich Jew's daughter. The Jew man and the house of gold, the reason the Jew have the gift of money, and the son of God turns the Jew into a pig. Um, maybe before looking at those sources, I'd just like to bring your attention to the use of the word Jew in some of the Irish language titles. Um, now, clearly that's not due to a lack of proficiency in the Irish language by the storytellers themselves. 
What it does usually indicate to us, and I think this is borne out by the research I've done, is that um, this material uh, was closely connected to an English language environment. Um, and for example, the storyteller Shauna Burka, um, who was 80 years old when the story was collected from him in 1936, um, and that's the story, the Son of God Turns the Jew into a Pig, um, he says that he heard that for the first time in America. And Peg Sears also attests to the influence of emigrants' experience in her own repertoire. So she begins the story, which is here entitled The Story of the Jew, with the following sentence. This is a story from the New World, or America, as that is where the Jews are most plentiful. So immediately we see um, the influence and the impact of emigration um, and of emigration to English language to English-speaking countries on the Gaelic language repertoire. Now, we will return to this observation. Um, a few words maybe about the, the, some of these stories. Um, as the titles suggest, they, are, um, they suggest stereotypical representation of Jews, so the prosperous, greedy Jew, the scheming Jew who converts to Christianity for his own purposes, and the disbelieving Jew. But of course, we must remember that the oral text, like the written text, is open to interpretation. We have no reason to believe that at least some of the listeners didn't critically engage with the material they heard. Indeed, the story recounted by Dara O'Jiran, and that's the story, The Reason Jews Have the Gift of Money, begins with the storyteller saying the following, Have you ever heard the reason the Jews have the gift of money? I've heard it. Maybe it is true, and maybe it is not but it could be true. So what we see there from the outset is the storyteller uh, emphasizing his own critical engagement with what he has heard. Folk stories, and this is the nature of the oral tradition, they're ambivalent and open to interpretation and tend to change as they're passed on from one storyteller to the next and uh, certainly across generations. This is evident, I think, from the story told by the renowned storyteller Peg Sayers. It's the story of a rich Jew uh, married to a Catholic whose trade is in decline, and this is one of the stories um, set in, in America. The implication is that his business is being boycotted by Christians. So much to his wife's delight, he decides to convert uh, to, to Catholicism to attract more custom. The local priest is very proud and more than willing to baptize him, but when his business gets back on track, he decides to return to his own religion. He hosts a dinner party on a Friday and invites his Jewish friend and the priest and serves turkey. When the priest reminds him that as a Catholic he should abstain from, uh, from meat on a Friday, the Jew fetches a basin of water and pours it on the turkey saying, come fish, come fish. And then he explains to the priest, and I quote, if the outside of me was Catholic, the inside wasn't. I can, no, I can no more make a fish out of a turkey by pouring water on it than you can make a Catholic out of me by pouring water on my head. My heart is with my own people and will remain so. If you don't like our company, the door is open and you can leave. The storyteller concludes that the poor priest had to leave with a bad taste in his mouth, excuse the pun, and he left the Jew and his company to themselves and never went next nor near them again. Clearly the tone, the facial expressions, the gestures 
would determine how an audience or individuals within the audience on a particular occasion would choose to understand this story. We also must remember that it was probably and would have been part of a repertoire of stories. So in some ways, analyzing a story without knowing the storyteller's repertoire is like looking at the line of a poem without taking the whole context uh, into consideration. So we could ask ourselves, is the storyteller being ironic when she mentions the poor priest? Um, because there is an inference, of course, that he was willing to baptize um, and, and uh, you know, for his own personal gain. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, is the story anti-Semitical or is it anti-clerical? Or does that very much depend on the context, on the storyteller, and on the time um, in which uh, it has been recounted? Oral traditions, by their nature, are multivalent and dynamic. And another example of this, and I think this is interesting because it relates to some of the English language material that you'll see in the exhibition here, is the story entitled Daniel O'Connell and the Jew. Um, and it contradicts the, the more common representation of Daniel O'Connell in both literature and in, 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 in popular memory as someone who was an advocate of Jewish rights. This story, collected in 1937 and heard 40 years previously, um, tells the story of an Irish man destitute in, in London who asks Daniel O'Connell to help him um, because he can't find any employment due to uh, anti-Irish sentiment in London. The plan that uh, Daniel O'Connell uh, suggests involves cheating uh, and stealing from um, a Jewish moneylender. O'Connell's uh, opinion of the Jewish moneylender as depicted in the story is decidedly anti-Semitic and based on racial stereotype. The Jewish moneylender, um, his interest rates are too high, um, he's breaking and devastating poor people who can't come up with the payments. Um, so his plan is that uh, um, the poor man will pretend to steal from the money lender, will be wrongly accused, will have to be paid compensation by the Jew. He will then return to the Jewish money lender a second time, and this time he will steal. But the Jewish money lender, determined not to be duped a second time, will not accuse him of stealing. And so essentially he gets away with the crime um, and has received two sets um, uh, you know, of, of riches from the Jew. Um, interestingly, you know, O'Connell's moral reasoning in the story, as it is depicted, is um, you know, it's noteworthy. He feels that the Jew's wealth is ill-gotten, and therefore that it's somehow morally justifiable to steal from him. Um, but what's more interesting is that O'Connell's plan is critiqued in the story itself. So when advised to actually steal from the money the second from the money lender the second time round, the poor man replies, and I quote, "That would be wrong." However, he does proceed with the plan. Uh, but instead of stealing two handfuls of gold, he only steals one. And when O'Connell rebukes him for this, the poor man replies, "I didn't want to destroy him altogether." So it ends with a, an observation by the storyteller that O'Connell was uh, cute and shrewd. Now, there's no or, uh, shortage of oral history about Daniel O'Connell. And depending on one's um, you know, political inclination, one could see this as O'Connell being a hero of the Irish underdog or as a rogue lawyer. 
um, who is himself uh, breaking the law. Whether or not there was any historical basis to this particular story, uh, you know, we cannot say for certain, but what it does alert a contemporary reader to is the fact that listeners were familiar with racial stereotypes about Jews and also that they were aware of interracial tensions in urban centres where Irish people were residing as immigrants. And we'll see that later prose accounts also um, develops this theme of interracial tension in urban centres among ethnic and religious minorities. Now, as I've said, um, some of these stories that I've just mentioned are set outside of Ireland or some of them were first heard um, abroad. And this is one of my key points, I suppose, that travel plays an important role in the representation of Jews in Gaelic literature. So emigration from Irish-speaking communities to the UK and to North America in particular were disproportionately high after the Great Famine of the 1840s and well into the 20th century. We don't have time to discuss the figures, but just to give you an idea of, uh, of what we're talking about, between 1841 and 1925, 4.7 million Irish people emigrated to the US. And the worst affected counties in Ireland, if we look at them, uh, you know, if we compare them, they tend to be the counties in which there were uh, Irish-speaking districts. In fact, some rural districts lost up to 60% of their population. So in this context, it's really not surprising that the representation of Jews in 20th century Gaelic literature is closely connected to what we call emigrant literature and the representation of life outside of Ireland. Indeed, many of the short stories or the novels which include Jewish characters are set in these urban centres and the Jews are very often portrayed as in a, a position of relative privilege to um, the poor Irish emigrants. Um, so we'll just look maybe at prose. I'm just keeping an eye on time. Yeah, we're doing well. Um, the first example we have is um, a novel by uh, Porrick O'Connor, um, published in 1910 uh, called Joriacht, or um, Exile. And it's the story of an Irish immigrant in London at the beginning of the 20th century. It's set in 1907. The protagonist, Michal, is maimed in an accident in London. He squanders his compensation money, and then he resorts to joining a travelling circus, a freak show, if you like, where he is chained in a cage because he's lost his arm and his leg and encouraged to roar like an animal to scare the spectators. The master of the travelling freak show um, is not openly designated as being Jewish in the novel itself, although the account of his physical appearance is often interpreted as uh, designating him as a Jewish character. And I'll just give you that, um, that description. A small yellow-faced man who had been sitting in a corner by himself stood up. He was a wrinkled, sly-looking little fellow with two bright eyes sunk deep in his head. You could hardly see them at all under his big black eyebrows. I almost went into fits of laughter when I noticed how his big, long, hooked nose and his long, pointed little chin were trying to kiss each other when he was speaking. The yellow man, and this is what he's called throughout the novel, is a shrewd businessman who has no qualms about publicly humiliating and debasing his employees for financial gain. But we have to take into account the context, I suppose, of the story. 
The character, like all characters in the novel, is named to, is referred to um, by, by a defining physical feature. And in this case, it's the color of his skin. He's called Yellow Man. Other characters include big red-haired woman, who's um, an Irish drunk uh, and an immigrant in London, and the fat lady, uh, who is another one of the, uh, the Yellow Man's public spectacles. I think it's important that we realize that this is an expressionistic text. The grotesqueness of the characters and the caricature-like descriptions serve a literary purpose in that they reflect the dehumanizing effect of urbanization, or indeed of capitalism. Throughout the novel, the first-person narrator comments on his own physical appearance, uh, maimed uh, and in, in many ways grotesque, um, and on his inability to make human contact. So we must remember that the descriptions we hear in the novel, uh, while harsh, are clearly given through the eyes of somebody who's psychologically disturbed uh, and who has been traumatized by, um, by his own personal accident and then by, by the experience of emigration. And just kind of... Um, I suppose, in some ways, to ensure that uh, people, you know, realise just I, how determined Porrick O'Connor was not to be a lazy writer, I'm going to give you um, an excerpt from the 1927 uh, article that he wrote for the Connacht Sentinel. And if, in it, I think he gives us really a valuable insight into the question, this whole question of literary representations of Jews in his own work. And in the newspaper article, he describes a novel that he's currently uh, writing, and it's based on ancient Christianity in India. He feels, however, that the Joseph of his novel is not a credible character. And I quote, I wasn't one bit happy with my description of this person. The, the words I put in his mouth weren't right. The person who would read it would not have a clear picture of this Joseph in front of their eyes. What height was he? What age was he? Did he have a wife and children? What type of clothes did he wear? Was he fair-haired, dark-haired, or a redhead? Was he jolly, a jolly humorous type, or the opposite? What should I do? I was living in London, England at the time, and as everybody knows, there were a vast amount of Jews living in the city, especially in the East End. Joseph was a Jew, according to the best authors. It stood to reason that if I went to the East End, I would meet a Jew like Joseph, or that I would see on my travels a face that would be an example of the type of face that Joseph in the story should have. And so off he goes to the East End to observe Jewish men um, uh, closely. Now, there's a lot more clearly we could say about some of the underlying assumptions in that article, but I do think it gives a valuable insight um, into the writer and his um, location in London and as an urban centre which had a Jewish population. The second writer, and I'm just going to very, speak very briefly about this novel, um, it was a novel uh, published in 1991. Uh, it's called The Tramp, um, but it's set in, uh, initially in London in the 1970s. The protagonist is a young um, emigrant from Galway, and the only Jewish character, and he's a minor character that we meet in the book, is the landlord of a Doss house. And this is how the Doss house is described. From the outside, it looked like a place which had been bombed during the war and forgotten about. Tall old-time windows and a small middle-aged Jew in charge of the hatch. 
He had a small dark office inside the door from which he kept an eye on people coming and going. He took my pound without saying a word. He led myself and the orange man to the very top of the house, a small, dark, little room with two bunk beds. I couldn't get it out of my head that this was the type of room to which murderers returned once they had committed their crime. Now, when we look at a, 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 um, a following up a description of another landlady, this, um, this description of the Jewish landlord is actually decidedly measured. Um, he speaks of his next lodgings, about, uh, of the wizened little woman with an uncouth manner and atrocious food um, uh, who robbed him of his money. Um, so as I said, the Jewish landlord is, is a minor character in this novel. Indeed, much of the novel, because the, the emigrant then goes to work in Coca-Cola in a factory in Germany, and much of the novel is taken up with racial stereotypes about Germans. Um, and while he admires their worth ethic, um, the business, the, his boss is a ruthless capitalist. And he speaks of the... Um, the way the, the Yugoslavian and uh, Turkish immigrants, like himself, are exploited because of their lack of German. Um, and the protagonist in the story falls in love with a German girl, but on realizing that her father had some connections to the SS, um, decided that he couldn't continue this relationship. There's one other um, text that, actually there are two other texts in the prose accounts that I'm just going to refer to. Uh, one of them is um, a memoir by Nelly Ivegliach, who was born in 1908, but emigrated to America in 1926. And in her memoirs, she has a very short account entitled Chicago from, 19, from the 1920s to the 1940s. And in that small account, she focuses exclusively on the Jewish population in Chicago, who owned clothes shops and hat shops and many other types of shops. Um, her account is descriptive, but she particularly mentions what she perceived as their loyalty to each other. Um, and this is part of the, that description. If there was a Jew with a few dollars, she says, he would help, they would help him open a shop. They were very good at supporting each other. They would put their wear out on the streets in the morning time and would be there until evening. Mostly men, they were small. The old men had large beards and they had very little English but enough to get by. They didn't work on the shovels like the Irish did. We always visited that district when going to visit our cousin who lived in the west side of the city. And then a little further on in the memoir, she, she remembers fondly being a domestic servant for a rabbi. Um, and marveled at his own self-discipline and at the work ethic of his mother in particular. As I say, these aren't literary representations in the strictest sense, but they do alert us to what I believe is an important question about gender and the representations of Jews in Irish literature. And I would venture to say that you could um, include English language literature as well. I speculate that if we had more accounts from female writers who had the type of personal experience of Jews that Nellie Vegliach and she speaks about other peers who also worked as domestic um, help, that we might have more fully rounded, more complex, more multifaceted uh, representations of Jews in, in literature. And that's my feminist <laughs> um, uh, perspective. Um, the most, I suppose, the most important and the canonical text in, in relation to um, 
the representation of Jews in Gaelic literature is undoubtedly Jermaine O'Sullivan's 1968 novel, uh, um, On Uen Vio, that could be translated as The Living Moment, if you like. It is characterized by um, an unusual stru sentence structure, by new compound words, by distinct capitalization, and um, it's mostly the internal monologue um, of the protagonist, but sometimes told in the third person. So the protagonist is Louis Stein. He's an Irish Jewish medical student whose mother is Christian. It's not clear whether she's Protestant or Catholic, but um, my reading of this text is that she's Protestant. His father is um, a local uh, lawyer. They live in Wayside, the local big house, and Stein moves, moves in elite social circles and leads a hedonistic life. He is in love with a fellow medical student, Orla, a well-to-do Catholic whose abstinence from premarital sex is a source of great frustration for him. Stein does not consider himself a true Jew like his father or Uncle Abby. He envies Orla's sense of national identity and blames his lack of patriotism on his education uh, in a boarding school in England. And in the National Gallery, in one of the uh, scenes in this, in this novel, looking at a painting, and this is the painting that they're looking at, an allegory by Sean Keating, which he wrongly attributes to Yeats, he muses as follows, and I quote, he felt a little strange in front of Yeats's allegory. Was it the child or something else that they were going to bury? The tricolor, certainly. An outlaw, maybe? What did he mean by outlaw? That character was definitely a patriot. A patriot. This first choice of word annoyed him. That outlaw was the first word that occurred to him, just as it would Rance, his brother, or Abby, possibly dad, the thugs. That was the difference between his upbringing and Orla's. That was the thing about her. She wasn't the usual curra type, the smart set, our horses in the curra, and our hearts in Ascot. The Kelly family were not the tail end of the ascendancy. She was educated in a convent in Kildare without any over there old tie, unlike the Zalton, which is the boarding school he knew. So he's uneasy and is envious of her sense of identity. Um, he's also self-conscious about his own Jewish heritage and considers it a distinct blessing that he inherited his mother's Christian nose. And this forms part of the exhibition in a, a quote, which I think is important and I'll give again. Louis heard a whisper, and these, this is the local people in the marsh speaking about him. He might well be a Christian, but he has a touch of the other in him. He paid no heed. He was used to it. He wouldn't even be called a Christian only for his mother. He didn't care, for every mirror told him so, but for the nose, except for your nose, Louis. He often gave his mother a kiss for that very reason, for her nose. It was amazing how important a Christian nose was. There are many ways to identify a Jew, some more accurate than others, but unless you were a bad boxer, the nose said it all. Even now, he touched it with his finger. He was fond of that nose. Louis' perception of his uncle, Abby, and his father is heavily influenced by his own prejudices. Abby is an eternal schemer who is supportive of his nephew's medical education because he's a hypochondriac and he would like to have a personal doctor in the future. Um, Stein vows not to be like him, greedy and materialistic. And both father and uncle are often, and on a few occasions, um, represented as being thrifty despite their wealth, uh, something which is a further source of frustration to Stein himself, to Louis, who likes to lead, to lead a lavish lifestyle. 
Louis becomes acquainted with Darach McGillarua, an Irish speaker who is willing to teach him Irish so that he can pass a law exam. Louis considers Darach the real deal, the Irish speaker with a rural background and a definite sense of belonging. When towards the end of the novel he realises that Darach is an active Republican and has been imprisoned in the Curra, he muses as follows. Strange that he never mentioned it, and he means his political activism. But of course, an Anglo-Jew couldn't be trusted. What would he know about breaking the border or patriotism? And this mirrors Darach's own thoughts about Louis Stein um, when he realises that Louis has crashed his flashy Alfa Romeo bought for him by his uncle into the Liffey and that Orla, his girlfriend, drowned in the accident. He contrasts his own set of circumstances, I suppose, to Louis as follows. He, and that's Louis, was too self-involved to bother with principles or any ideals, not to mention patriotism. Louis, had, who at this stage would be dressed for the city, he wouldn't remain too long under the shadow of tragedy. That was his type. It once was, it no longer is. He would never understand why a happy man would risk his life crossing the border to the north, knowing that if he wasn't killed in the north, he would be imprisoned in the south. Stein wouldn't do that because Stein was the most important thing to Stein. In a way, however, it wasn't his fault. It was the way he was brought up. Now, these musings on identity, really, they aren't as clear-cut as maybe these abstracts might have you uh, believe, because Darak's own wife dismisses his nationalism and his patriotism as misguided romanticism that has left her and her daughter destitute and depending on the charity of Louis Stein's father. It gets very complicated. But her conversation with Louis serves to deconstruct this idea of the authentic Irish speaker. Indeed, one could interpret this novel as a critical appraisal of nationalism itself, which is based on this ideal of the real deal, of the perfect Irish person, uh, which doesn't exist. And while the portrayal particularly of Stein Sr. and Uncle Abby tend towards cliché, they're not the stereotypical Jewish characters that we find in earlier prose accounts. O'Sullivan gives us an insight into their motives, they have redeeming features, um, but what I really think is valuable about this uh, novel is really the insight on how problematic hyphenated identity can be for those who feel that they're rooted in neither culture. In a world where it's very fashionable to celebrate hybridity and multiple identities, Louis Stein's story is a testimony to the personal stress that dual or multiple heritages can engender. And it's also an, an examination of intergenerational conflict and tension. Um, Professor Polo Doherty's lecture on Irish-Jewish autobiographies explored some of these very questions, the way the first generation were very rooted and, and, and felt very at home in their Jewish identity, and the f next generation felt uh, at sea, uh, neither Irish nor Jewish in certain instances. I think there are certainly opportunities there to look at these thematic links. And finally, we'll look at um, 20th century uh, Gaelic poetry, uh, which contains a number of poems in response to aspects um, of the Holocaust, um, or Shao. The most substantial poems, and I, I've there are a number of poems, but I'm just going to look at three of the, the, the best, in my opinion, and also um, the, maybe 
the best known examples. Uh, the poem Shao or Shoah, as it's called in Irish, by Marta Wakathi, published in 1999. A book length poem entitled The Day They Came by Derry O'Sullivan, and that's the picture of it there, published in 2005. And the poem which concludes this exhibition, Yudin, uh, by uh, Bridge Niwaran, published in 2005. And I'm just going to say, rather than looking again at, you know, at small textual points, I'm just going to say something about the background of each of these poems, because it's unusual that each poet gives us information about um, the background to the poem. We generally don't get that insight into what inspired a poet. Um, so we'll begin with the longest poem, Derry O'Sullivan's The Day They Came, which is set in Paris. And it's 52 pages long, although um, it has relatively, you know, the, the text on each page is is, um, is minimal, really, six or seven lines uh, for the most part. And at the end of the, the poem, the poet explains in verse what, um, what inspired him to write this poem. When he finds out from an old French neighbour, he lives in Paris, um, that a young Jewish girl, um, Sarah Polonsky, once lived in the apartment that his family now inhabit. And as he watches daughter play in the yard, the image of the other child comes to mind, and he begins to imagine her existence in his home. He's also taken back when he, when he discovered that his French neighbour, whom he likes, admits that she was friendly with the Nazis, that they were kind to them. And he deliberates on the connections. He was born in 1944, the year Sarah was taken away, his mother's father was part of those troops who liberated Paris some months later. Sarah's history, which is not written down, is now part of the history of his home. And so he decides to actively remember her presence in his home. This poem, you know, it hasn't been translated into English, so I can't give you quotes that would give you a sense of what the poem is, but it's through the eyes of a child. And we're not always quite sure if it's Sarah, if it's... the poet or the first person speaker as a child or his own child. Um, but for the sake of today's lecture, I've just translated part of the, um, the part of the final verse that outlines the poet's motivation. Sarah is without a death certificate, that is, without a history. But her young ways remain in the memory of the old. I promise quietly to the dumb wall, greeting them, I will greet her. I will see her in my children who brighten her old rooms with their laughter. I will hear her in the beat of feet on their stairs, in the symphony of skipping feet in the paves, on the paved stones in the yard. Sarah down, Sarah up, Sarah sad, Sarah saved. I shove my bag of Liberation newspapers in the green bottle bank and I return up the stairs home, anti-clockwise like the Hebrew clock I saw in Prague turning backwards until the Second World War broke out. Derry O'Sullivan, Paris, 2002-2004. With the notable exception of um, Porik de Puer, this poem has received very little critical recognition, and I really hope that this, that this project will bring translators and Irish language readers uh, and literary scholars to this really important text. Brichny Warren's poem, um, uh, three verses of which uh, have been reproduced, as I said, uh, mentions Susie and Zoltan uh, in the poem. And in January 2005, um, 
The Irish Times journalist Shane Hegarty wrote an article entitled Living in Death's Shadows, which was based on an interview with Sultan Sin Collis and Susie Diamond, who played together as children in Bergen-Belsen. I'm not suggesting that the poet was inspired uh, by a newspaper article, but what I, what I wanted to show was that um, the poem references real people um, and their story that was already in the public domain. So unlike Derry O'Sullivan's poem, much of which out of necessity is a fictional reimagining through the eyes of a Jewish child who left no record of her experiences, Niwaran's poem is clearly based on accounts given by uh, Susie and Zoltan themselves. It's a poetical rendering of reported experiences. And in referencing in her own poem their wish to speak, so to ensure that posterity will not allow this event to be forgotten, the poet aligns her poem uh, with that commemorative act. And I think that's important. Um, she doesn't seek to aestheticize or to appropriate other people's experience. And finally, the poem by Moira Wakati Shao um, was written after the poet visited um, this memorial in um, Albertinaplatz in Vienna in 1988. Uh, and this is detailed in the subtitle of the poem. And the poem describes this um, the statue of the kneeling Jew by Alfred Herdlitzke, uh, which is a reminder of this other picture, how Jews were made scrub political slogans of the sidewalks in Vienna uh, in the Anschluss in March 1938. In his analysis, and the, this poem is probably known to some, it has formed part of the Holocaust um, memorial uh, uh, booklets, um, but in, his, uh, in looking at this poem, Professor Michael McCraw emphasizes the contrasts in the poem um, between, uh, we'll say, high and low, so both physically and metaphorically, between walking and crawling, between humanity and brutality. And I think these binary oppositions, these contrasts, are highly appropriate as a literary technique. Um, because, of course, racial stereotyping and fascism depends on such simplifications, them and us, good and bad, uh, strong and weak, the self and the other. And I think um, in the case of Morawakati, it is appropriate to realize just how alert she was, even as a child, to racial iconography and to the politics of contemporary Europe. Her autobiography is an important source of information for those interested in Irish-Jewish relations. It contests the popular idea that Irish-speaking communities in the early to mid part of the last century were in some way insular or at a remove from contemporary events, contemporary European events. As the daughter of a government minister and the niece of a classical scholar and linguist, uh, Dr. Porrick de Bruyne, she was part of a ruling elite who were acutely aware of the cultural and historical connections between Ireland and Europe, and especially between Gaelic Ireland and Europe. She was cosmopolitan in disposition, one could say. And I'm going to give you a little extract out of her autobiography. Um, I don't, yeah, I think it'll be obvious why. In 1934, when she was 12, she attended the Mozart Festival in Salzburg uh, with a family friend. And I quote, my mother had told me before I left, if anyone said Heil Hitler to me, well, I, I was to say, Gia So, um, God and Mary be with you. 
she recounts the fairy-like uh, landscape of Bavaria, crossing the border to Austria and visiting the summer palace of the last Austro-Hungarian emperor. And this is some of her account. It was all very gemütlich and bourgeois. One afternoon there were no excursions and my companions were reading or resting. I set out alone to buy a film for my camera. The village of St. Wolfgang observed the siesta and I wandered idly through the empty streets until I was brought up short in front of a display case outside the offices of Der Stürmer, the Nazi newspaper. I could not take my eyes off it. My feet seemed stuck to the pavement. A drumming started in my head and I felt my heart thump. The case was full of obscene cartoons, the sort I think I never previously could have imagined, let alone seen. All the protagonists were shown with dehumanized Semitic features. Some were dressed as Catholic priests and nuns, and I think it was that that alerted me to the nature of the whole. I was a very innocent child and came from an innocent culture, but I knew this was evil, even though evil was not a concept I had ever considered before. I was aware of casual, social anti-Semitism in Dublin. I had heard Jewessy used as cinnamon for vulgar. My uncle Paddy had had trouble um, convincing us that Hilaire Belloc's uh, cautionary tale about the little Jewish girl was not funny, although the others were. Now I knew he had been right. And she goes on to recount also knowing um, the French-Jewish linguist uh, Marie-Jean-Val, Jean uh, or Moira Francoch, Moira, the French woman, as she was known uh, by natives of the Blasket Islands and Dunqueen. And at the sadness of hearing uh, that she committed suicide once Paris fell. I think you know, these formative experiences influenced the poets to take a very strong stance in the controversy uh, surrounding the appointment of uh, Francis or the designation um, of the poet novelist Francis Stewart as C in Aesthana or the Irish Association of the Arts um, in 1996. Uh, Mara Wakati subsequently resigned um, her position in Aesthana um, in protest. And why do I mention that? I think the poem Shoah, which was written years before that controversy, um, and its emphasis on memory and on remembering, and her later actions are entirely consistent with her own poetics. To ignore or to conveniently forget, as she thought, the personal history of a figure who she believed was anti-Semitic um, and who was now to be publicly honoured by his literary peers was her, in her view, unethical and morally suspect. Um, I think she is one of uh, the, the great characters, maybe, or the, not characters, but the great figures and personality in Gaelic language literature, um, who is only in recent years, I think her importance is being um, publicly acknowledged. So to conclude with some general observations, which I give tentatively as really this is ongoing research and there is much more there than I ever expected um, when I became part of this research group. It's very invigorating um, and what I see more than maybe some of the importance of my own current research is are the possibilities for others who would pick up on some of these little threads um, and continue that research. So 
the representations of jewels in the oral culture um, does depend to a large extent on racial stereotypes, but rather than jump to any easy conclusions that this somehow reflects generally held anti-Semitic views in the 19th or the early 20th century, I think we need to realise the nature of oral material as a performance piece, as one that was open to interpretation by both teller and audience. Jewish representations in prose is intimately linked with what we might call emigrant culture. Um, as I've explained, the short stories and the novels are often set outside of Ireland and the protagonist, um, an Irish emigrant. In most of that literature, Jewish characters are marginal. They're very often not even given a name. Um, and they tend to function to portray just how downtrodden the Irish emigrant is, the, you know, their subordinate position in the host society, um, both economically and culturally. And what I mentioned was that I'm really becoming increasingly interested in looking beyond canonical literary texts um, and established and esteemed genres like the short story and the novel to find maybe female perspectives um, informed by their acquaintance with Jews in a context that was radically different from the, um, from the experience of male immigrants. Um, finally, I think uh, 20th century and contemporary, contemporary poetry contains a number of poems written after the Second World War that respond to the violation of human rights and to the atrocities um, of the Shah or the Holocaust, um, and which deal and, and thematicize the need to remember. Each of the poems discussed, I think, has avoided unethical comparisons between Irish historical experience and Jewish experience, and I think that's important. I think there, there is a, con a conscious effort in these texts not to appropriate or to, in some way, aestheticize other people's sufferings. So in short, then, I think the history of the Irish language in the 19th and 20th century has undoubtedly impacted on how Jews are represented in Gaelic culture. I would argue that the minority status of the language itself should not lead us to conclude that its literature does not contain unique and important insights that really can only enrich our understanding of this topic. Thank you.